Good morning, Village Church East. So good to see you this morning. My name is Craig Jarvis. I'm the lead pastor here at Village Church East. And uh, it's good to see some old friends with us this morning. Welcome, welcome. Um, these guys have uh, been a part of our church in the past. In fact, our first baptism actually is sitting right there. Raise your hand up real high. There he is. There he is right there. First guy we ever baptized as a church in my pool in my backyard. Yeah, and he survived. So good to have you back, you guys. And uh, good to have friends back with us, too. So uh, without further ado, we are starting a brand new series today called Jacob. We've done Abraham, Isaac, and now after Easter, we are starting this new series in Jacob. This like, takes about uh, eight weeks to go through. Jacob is an enormously interesting study. Uh, this guy actually today kind of lays the foundation for who this guy actually was. And uh, it's very interesting. Uh, these three names are typically referred to in the Bible, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as founders of the Jewish faith. And so uh, this guy is really important for us to understand, especially as we have seen Christ come, the fulfillment of Jesus Christ, and celebrated that with Easter uh, and his resurrection last Sunday. Uh, Jacob becomes a very intriguing figure for us to understand exactly who we are and how we got to be called Christians. Um, Jacob is integral to our faith and uh, didn't always make a lot of good decisions, uh, but the Lord did an amazing work in him. And I'm very excited about doing this study with you. In fact, there is a verse in the Old Testament that probably many of you have heard in one context or another from Jeremiah 29 and verse 11. This passage of Scripture actually is, uh, this doesn't deal with Jacob, but it's a passage of Scripture that, um, that I'm going to actually begin our conversation regarding Jacob with. And here's why. The context of this verse um, is the children of Israel were in rebellion against God. They did not want to follow God's laws. They were abusing their own people. They had, uh, they had rigged the judicial system. They were abusing the poor. Uh, the rich were excelling, the poor were not excelling, uh, they were worshiping idols, they were marrying uh, God-haters, uh, and they had just gone full-throttle rebellion against God. God had reached out to them and offered to pull them back, he's told them about his love, he sent them prophets to try and get them back, and they have completely disregarded his love and his grace altogether. The reason that God did that and pleading for them to come back to worshiping him was because if they went too far down that road, they would enter into consequences for their rebellion. You know, you know whenever you choose to live against God's principles, you always suffer consequences because you, you, you behave in a manner that you weren't, you weren't made to operate in. And as a result of that, if you enter into uh, a state of rebellion against the way that God intends for you to live your life, there's almost always consequences. Um, sometimes they last longer than others. And in the world we live today, uh, those consequences are all around us every day. And perhaps some of you even here this morning are living with some of those consequences of past decisions. The good thing about God is that uh, forgiveness is always available. His love is always full. His grace is always free. And when you go to him and you ask him for forgiveness, he welcomes you back. But sometimes we have to live with the consequences. 
the children of Israel, because they had allowed themselves, their nation, to decay from the inside out because of these bad choices, the judicial system falling apart, the way they were uh, just a dog-eat-dog kind of world, their enemies took advantage of them and took them into captivity. And they were crying out to God, and they said, oh, we don't want to go into captivity. And all of a sudden, in that context, we have this verse. God says to them, uh, Jeremiah 29 and verse 11, this is before they're going into captivity, but this is so that they know, even though they may go into captivity, God's not giving up on them. So I'd like for us to read this together. Do you know this verse? Is this familiar for, for most of you? Okay, here we go. If you don't know this verse, it's a great one to, to know, and now you know the context Would you read it with me? Here we go. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That is the heart of God. In the context of Jeremiah 29 verse 11, Jeremiah is telling them, you're going to go into captivity, it's going to be hard. Seventy years of authoritative rule of the Babylonians over you. They're going to abuse you. They're going to steal your land. They're going to burn your houses down. It's going to be very, very bad. And you're going to be in captivity for a long time. But I'm here to tell you that God's not giving up on you. He still has a future and a hope in place for you. The emphasis of this passage is to help us realize God has a future for every one of us. And it is better than anything we could plan for ourselves. That is why God says, I have a future and a hope for you. Living by faith means believing daily that God has a good future in plan for us. And we're used to hearing this, right? God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life, right? We're so used to hearing that. But just think about it. God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. The challenge for us is we like to have a wonderful plan for our lives. And giving in to that idea that God has a plan that cannot be thwarted and we must kind of ease into and allow him to do what he wants to do in our lives is very difficult. But that is the definition of living by faith. God is up to something bigger than I could be on my own and therefore I am here to steward God's plans, not my own. Say it one more time. I am here to steward God's plans and not my own. Now, that's so tough to us, isn't it? Because I'm in charge. There's a few things that happened this morning, and I shared it with the people that I was driving over here with, and I was thinking to myself, boy, you know, there's some things that, that could have happened to make this morning a lot easier than it actually went with the setup and all the things that we had to do. If only I had taken charge of the whole thing, none of, none of these challenges would have occurred. Like, we say that all, of our, all, of our, all the time in our lives, right? If you want something done... Yeah, But the point of faith is finding that and realizing that God has a plan for my life and it's better than anything I could have planned on my own. Tough for those of us, especially with type A personalities. Now here's the sticking point. Yielding your future to God is one of the hardest things you can do. Each of us struggles with a trap of believing that our own manufactured future is better than anything God could prepare for us. This is the story of Jacob. And the first time we meet him, Jacob is grappling God with God for a future because he's not satisfied with waiting on God. That is our first introduction to Jacob. Now, when I was a kid, 
I took judo lessons. Judo is also called, oh, whoa, whoa, go back to that other slide just because it's good. That's not me. That's two other guys. But this is, uh, I've called this grappling for your future because in judo, now you can go to the next slide. Thanks, Emma. In judo, the thing is, it's not so much about the throwing, although that's a lot of fun. It's not so much about the hitting, although that's a lot of fun. The whole thing about judo or jujitsu, same deal. The whole thing about this, this, this um, discipline is that you have to figure out how to get the advantage, the position of advantage over your opponent. So the throwing and all of that is a lot of fun to do. Everybody goes right for that. But you can't get to throw somebody. You can't get to hit someone unless you can put yourself into an advantageous position. And so everybody loves these charts on how to throw and hand-throwing techniques, hip-throwing techniques, pinning techniques, striking techniques. But the ability of judo, the, the, the bottom line of judo, is always finding how to use your, your ability, your weaker ability, to get control over your opponent. In fact, I did a little bit of research on this, because I didn't know this. I took judo when I was like a, a middle schooler. But uh, judo actually started as a discipline for weaker people to learn how to take advantage of stronger people. So now they have uh, weight divisions and classes and all of that. But that's not how judo was meant to be. It was meant to be a lifestyle where you had, you know, you, your, your diet, your exercise, everything was to discipline your body so that you as a weaker could take advantage of with weight or, uh, or throwing techniques, use the weight of the, your opponent against himself. This uh, grappling idea is used in judo a lot. The true nature is to sharpen the skill of grappling to get advantage over a stronger opponent. And the definition of grappling is this. In hand-to-hand combat, grappling is a close fighting technique used to gain a physical advantage such as improving relative position or causing injury to the opponent. Grappling typically does not include the use of weapons. It's simply putting yourself in the dominant position. Now, I read that and I thought to myself, how many of us live our lives exactly that way? Always thinking to ourselves, what do I need to do to put myself in the dominant position at work, in our relationships, with our spouse, with our kids? Don't we do this on a regular basis? Like, what do I need to do today in order to get the dominant position over somebody else in the future? You may not know this, but Jacob was named for his grappling abilities. Did you know that? Here's a, uh, here's a verse. Even in the womb, these guys were grappling. Uh, his mother, uh, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, got pregnant with Jacob and Esau. They were both twins in the womb. And she had a very difficult pregnancy that we're told about in Scripture. She doesn't know this, but the reason she has a difficult pregnancy is because these kids were always grappling in the womb. Look at this. It's very interesting. Verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children together struggled within her. Imagine. These, these, these are babies being formed in the womb, and they've begun grappling already. If you read down another verse, they even struggled on the day they were born. This is why Jacob was named Jacob. Verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red, his body like a hairy cloak. (laughs) That's something, isn't it? Yeah. 
So they called his name Esau, which means reddish. All right? Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Here's what Jacob means. Jacob means grabbed the heel. Jacob was named for his trait of fighting with his brother. Some of you have kids, and you might want to name them differently after you go home today. We're changing your name to Jacob because you're always fighting with your sibling. Here's here's an interesting one. If they were twins, how come one is older than the other? Because one was born first. And the one that was born first was Esau, but the one that wanted to be born first was Jacob, hanging onto his heel, even as a baby. It's so interesting. Though Esau would emerge first, the story constantly points to Jacob's constant desire to dominate over Esau. Jacob is seen trying to catch up with his brother from the very start. Now, here's the kicker. God had a plan for Esau's life, and God had a plan for Jacob's life. In fact, God has a plan for your life too, and for my life. God told Rebekah that he had a plan for Jacob's life. If you back up at verse 22, the end of that verse goes like this. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if this is thus... If it is thus, if it's going to be like this, why is this happening to me? She had a difficult pregnancy and she was just, she was, she was torqued. Like, why am I going through all of this pain? So she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, he told her why this is happening. Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other grappling and the older shall serve the Now, that is very unusual for the older to serve the younger. In Old Testament times, the older always got the birthright, always got the inheritance, always got the say as to what the siblings did. The older one got all the responsibilities. For those of you that that have uh, more than one child, you know the older one always gets all the responsibilities, right? All All you firstborns are going, yeah, and it's not fair, right? In the Old Testament, this was normal. It was very, very intentional. The firstborn was always that way. But in this case, with Esau and Jacob, the older will serve the younger. A prophecy is made to Rebekah that, um, that would explain why Jacob would be like he was and why Esau would be like he was. I'm so anxious to get into the study with you over the next couple of weeks because it just happens over and over and over again. And by the way, do you think Rebekah told Jacob this as he was growing up? No? Think she did? I think she did, and here's why. Rebecca loved Jacob. Isaac loved Esau. So I think Rebecca, in the nights when Jacob was home crying himself to sleep at night because Esau gets all the breaks and he doesn't, I can just imagine Rebecca rocking him to sleep at night and going, Nobody understands, sweetie. You're so special. God made a plan for you before you were even born, and Esau's going to bite it someday, and you're going to rule over him. I can see her saying that. I don't have any proof of that, but I can see it happening. So Jacob began his whole life grappling, not just with Esau, by the way. Jacob fought with every person he met. I, oh, I can't wait to... The last... Oh, sorry, oh, the cat out of the bag. Jacob even fought with somebody that you should, at this point in your lives, know personally. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to get there. So good. 
For Jacob, Esau would, would be a lifelong test, not just of his character, but of his ability to trust the plan over his God and more. And by the way, nobody in this family needed to worry about their future. Not one of them. Abraham was told that he was going to be a blessed nation from God. He would be a blessing to all those nations around him, and anyone who cursed him, those would be cursed. God would take care of Abraham. God's plan for these folks was made before they were even born. God had a plan for Isaac. Isaac would be the conduit. We already talked about this when we did our study on Isaac, to build the generation and pass on God's blessings and faith to the next generation. And God had a plan for Jacob, and it was told to his mom before he was even born. To develop these functional states and to be a nation that God would use. But more than his father and grandfather, Jacob was so insecure about God having that much control. Jacob was not willing to give that God that much control. So he grappled for every inch of power he ever got. Verse 27, here's the first story we have about Jacob. When the boys grew up, Esau was a what church? Skillful hunter. A man of the field. Harry. They didn't call him Harry, they just called him Esau, but he's a man of the field. While Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents, maybe a geek, I'm not sure. Esau was a man of the field, Jacob, quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And right off the bat, church, we see dysfunction. These parents' affections are unbalanced toward their children. And here's what I just don't understand. And I'd love for, if you want to have a chat after church, because maybe you see something here I don't. But here's, here's the reason their affection is unbalanced toward their children. What is the reason that Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob? Because he liked his food. Doesn't that seem a little shallow to you? Well, maybe not. <laughs> maybe you're thinking, it must have been really good food. Isaac loved Esau because of his food. We're not told why Rebekah loved Jacob more. Maybe it's because Jacob was chosen by God and she was given that uh, insight. Listen, church, I'm here to tell you, every child yearns for their dad's approval. Everyone. And every child deserves their dad's approval. God made your children like they are, as different as they are, and our, our job is to guide and teach them, but it is God's job to make them who they need to be. So fathers, you need to tell your children regularly that you're proud of them. That is a, that is a given. I'm amazed at how many people I talk to that just end up at funerals. And the, and the conversation with them over the time as I'm planning the funeral with them for their dads goes, I just hope he was proud of me. Oh. I was fortunate enough to grow up in a family where my dad told me he was proud of me on a regular basis. Even, even when I didn't know it was coming, my dad would look at me and he would say, you know, Craig, I'm proud of you. I, I, I did my dad's memorial service with not one question that my dad was proud of me. So if you're a dad here this morning, please make sure your children know you're proud of them. You don't have to be proud of their activities all the time because kids are not the smartest tool in the shed sometimes. You don't have to be proud of their activity, but you're proud of what God is doing in their lives because God has a plan for their lives. And his plan is to use them incredibly. 
And you don't want to be another horror story of children who go to their memorial service for their dads and hope that their dads loved them and was, and was proud of them. Verse 29. When, one day, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. So Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Notice the term red comes into play again here. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. (laughs) In these three short verses, we see a lot. The first thing you see is that this stew must have had some magical properties. But it didn't. There was nothing spectacular about the stew. In fact, the Bible just says it's some red stew he was putting together. It doesn't even, it doesn't even tell us what's in the stew yet. It just says it's red stew on the stove. And we're told that Esau is exhausted. In this day and age, he said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew. In our day and age, that is such a simple statement that it could be, hey, can I have a sip of that? Just give me a sip of that, would you? Just a little bite. I don't want the whole bowl. Just give me a sip. Esau is probably suffering from exhaustion and dehydration, but he's not dying, or else he wouldn't be able to speak. He wouldn't be able to speak. You ever get so exhausted that you can barely speak? Well, he could seem to speak just fine. In fact, in the Hebrew, he uses the word please. It's not communicated here because it's attached to a different word. But he actually says to Jacob, please, can I have a sip of your soup? That red stuff, he calls it. Now listen, the natural response of a sibling to another sibling that is exhausted and feels like he's dying would be to give him a sip of soup, wouldn't you say? You want a sip? Here's a sip. For <laughs> Maybe not, I don't know. I'm not from your family, apparently. But I would think that the normal family would say, yeah, have a sip of soup. In this family, Jacob not only denies him a sip of soup... But Jacob has a plan all ready to go. He doesn't even think about this. It's like he's waiting for an open door. I want the birthright, and I'm waiting for a weak moment in Esau's life. So Esau drags himself through the door, thinking to himself, he's going to die, but his lovely brother is cooking some red stuff on the stove. And he's thinking to himself, listen, Jacob, please, can I have a sip of that? And he's thinking to himself, surely a spoonful. He's got a whole tub on the stove. But instead, Jacob, in the background, has been looking for apparently quite a while for a small crack so that he can steal something that's not his to have. Yeah, I'll give you a sip of soup. You give me your birthright. Not even a thought of it. Obviously, he's looking for a chance. He's ready for Esau and his weakness. And when the door opened, he didn't say please. He demanded it. Jacob knew the blessing of God was attached to that birthright. If he's going to get what his grandfather had, Abraham, and by the way, they were rich. If he's going to have what his grandfather had, if he's going to have what Isaac had, his dad, if he's going to have what Esau is supposed to have as the firstborn, just because he came out of the womb first, they're twins, then at Esau's weakest moment, he's going to steal it from him. Give me your birthright. I'll give you a sip of soup. Now we have a view into Jacob's heart. Would you like to view into Esau's heart? (laughs) It's just as bad. Verse 32. 
Esau said, it's like this little uh, bubble that comes out of his head that we can read, all right? Like the comic strips. Esau said to himself, I'm about to die. Of what use is this birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Note the contrast. Jacob valued the promise of God wrapped in that birthright. Esau couldn't have cared less. Verse 34. Then Jacob gave Esau bread, and now we find out what's in the stew. What's in the stew? There's not even any meat in it. It's veggie stew. It's like pizza with vegetables on it. It's not even worth it. (laughs) Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. And thus Esau despised Jacob. True or false? Esau despised Jacob? Esau despised what? That's a bad heart. He, doesn't, he didn't even despise the right thing. He just hated the fact that he had to be always the one making the decisions. He was the one given this responsibility. He was the one that all his shoulders were supposed to carry all the way to the family. And he despised his birthright. And so he sold it for a sip of vegetable stew. Watery soup. So what? After this story, Jacob is self-satisfied, pats himself on the back and says, it has begun. Now he's got to do a few other things, and you'll get to see him do a few crazy things here in the, in the near future over the next few Sundays. But the first step is completed. Steal the birthright. Start dividing the family. Done. Check. Esau walks away. He's angry. He has no birthright, but he has other things that he can still hang on to. Blessings that will come down because of being the firstborn. He will lose those very soon, but for now, he still has that. All he's thinking to himself is, what good is this birthright to me? It's just a thing. It's almost like you living your life with the name, last name of your dad or your grandfather. And thinking to yourself, eh, what does it mean to be a Jarvis? It's just a name. It doesn't mean anything. There was no value attached at all. So what does this mean for us? And by the way, Jacob, Jacob knew God had his future in store. He just wasn't willing to wait for it. So number one, God does have a meticulous plan for your future. And it is much bigger than you could dream of yourself. That's true for every person that walks the planet. Think of the amount of work God had to do to get you here. He had to bring your, your ancestors together and he had to get them into a position where they had relationships and then he had to work with them and get in a position where they had relationships and then he had to get to your parents and get them in a position where they had a relationship and and then all of this worked together so that you could be here. And then he put your cells together, and he put your arms where they go, and your eyes where they go, and your feet where they go, and he built you, it says in the Scripture, in your mother's womb. He knew you from the beginning of creation, it says in Scripture. He planned for your existence. Listen, God doesn't make stuff just to sit it on a shelf. 
God makes stuff to use stuff. And if you're here, God has a plan for you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. So God has a meticulous plan for your future. You may not know what it is. I may not know what it is, but God does. And living by faith means surrendering to him on a regular basis so that his plan can be unfolded in your actions and in your life. No one is here by mistake. If you're here and you're brokenhearted, you're not here by mistake. If you're here and you're physically hurt, disabled, or crushed, you are not here by mistake. Not even the rebel against God is here by mistake. God's plan includes all of them. In God's incredible wisdom and power, he has all of this worked out so that his ultimate plan can be done. And you are a small part of that plan. A future of hope and possibilities is around the corner. God knows your limitations. He knows your past. He knows your future. He takes them all into account. He knows your strengths. He knows your weakness. He knows exactly who you are. And he will take you in the direction that he has planned for you. Your job is just to go along for the ride. Allow him to do what he needs to do in your life. Sometimes he does things backwards and impossible. Esau should have had the birthright. But it was... For, it was uh, prophesied, foretold, that Jacob would be the one that receives these things. Even though Jacob should have waited, <laughs> Jacob took, took matters into his own hands. God loves to do things backwards to show us his power. So we live in a world of futures, open futures and endless possibilities, but our goal is to determine whose plan is best. Is it mine or is it God's? And Jacob is fighting for future in a way that comes natural to him. Now I want to tell you, in six chapters, Jacob finds power and wealth and everything that you can imagine anybody would want. Jacob is a rich, strong man. He has servants and cattle and sheep and everything that you need way back here to make you into a powerful individual. But he's got two clans running after him trying to kill him. Obey God today. Do what you know is right and in his plan today. Live pure. Guard your heart. Watch your eyes. Teach your children God's plan for them. Redeem your world. Help the poor. Give of your income to see God's purposes grow. Do what you know God wants you to do today, and his plan for your future will unroll. Number two. God's plan is so much bigger than you know right now. And ultimately, it's not about you. (laughs) Ultimately, it's something bigger that God is up to. You are a part of what God is doing on a global scale. It may not always be about you, but it's always redeeming the world for his glory. And that's why Christians are so weird sometimes, is because we are not out for what makes life best for us. We are out for what makes life glorifying to God. So we don't use our money like people around us use their money. We don't use our time the way people around us use our time. We don't lay in bed on Sundays. We come to church on Sundays. We do things a little differently. Our values are a little different because we live by faith in a way that we know glorifies God, not ourselves. We are not after what makes us better. We're after what will cause people to worship God more. Do we have an agenda? You bet. If you're here this morning, you're thinking to yourself, you guys have an agenda here. You're dead right we do. 
We have an agenda. Our agenda is to get you to understand worshiping God is the best thing you could do with your life. And anything else is really a waste of time. Chasing your tail and ending up with nothing. That's our agenda. Our agenda is to do things so that this world will know God is great, God is good, God loves them, and he has a plan for their lives, just like he does for our lives. So run the long game. And you may not always get what you want. The thing that I remember about this is David. You remember David? He desperately, King David, desperately wanted to build a temple for God. It was the only thing he really wanted. And on his deathbed, he... He was told by God, he said, you know, David, you should know by now, you should realize, I'm not going to let you build the temple, but your son will. And that's good enough. And Solomon built God one of the most amazing temples that the world has ever known. You may not always get what you want, but whatever God has for you is better than what you could get on your own. Number three. You can make the journey to that future God has for you, joyful or miserable. (laughs) Here's a recipe for joy. Honor God in your present and prayerfully follow the Lord into his will. Here's a recipe for misery. Fight with God about your present and take things into your own hands. That is your path. That's why people really don't like being Christians, by the way. Because, and Jesus put it this way, very, I mean, he's not hiding anything. Jesus said, unless you're willing to take up your cross and follow me, you're not going to be one of our, my disciples. So you've got to get this. Your yielding to God needs to include everything. Your dreams, your future, your hopes, your children, everything. Because we believe as believers, we believe as Christians, Christ followers, that God's plans for us and for our family are far better than anything we could dream up on our own. God was up to something bigger than these two brothers. God is doing what he has promised to do, fulfilling his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and now to Jacob. But Jacob keeps grabbing stuff because he doesn't trust God to do it on his own. So what is my life? Like every person before me and every person that follows, I am a transitional character at best. I am here to steward God's plans. How many of you watched um, Lord of the Rings? Yeah, all right. One of my favorite scenes is uh, that king, and I can never remember his name, and I wasn't going to give this illustration, so this is a terrible thing because I don't have his name. But do you remember the scene where the king was over the city of men, and he was just there until the real king, Aragon, I think it was, would come back? He was a steward. I forget his name. But there is a scene in that, one of the final ones, I think it's in the third one, where this fat guy is sitting at this huge table, and he's just stuffing these grapes into his mouth, and they're just streaming down his cheeks, down his chin. And he's eating this food, and he's sitting there, and Gandalf walks in. Doors fly open, he walks into this huge room, and you can hear the echo of his cane on the stone floor. And he walks up to this guy that I wish I could remember his name, and I can't remember his name, but he's sitting there and he's chewing these, and he's defending his actions while his city is being burned down. And Gandalf says, the enemy is at the door. And the guy says, I've done the best I could. And Gandalf says, you are not here as king. 
you are here to watch this place until the king comes back. Steward. I love it. Steward. Because that king had the idea that he was in charge, but he was only a steward. And listen, church, we are stewards. Stewards of everything we have been given by God. Not so that we can make more of it for ourselves, but so that we can make more of it for God. We are stewards. And that's what makes Christians different. Our value system is built on the fact our goal is to make more people and a world love and honor and worship God first. I am here to steward God's plans. I cannot stress this enough. Your life is not ultimately about you. It's about those who come after you. And ultimately, it is about God first. Let's pray. So Father, this kind of uh, message is foreign to a world that teaches us get everything you can. Lord, we know that every good gift comes from you. You make it clear in Scripture. We know that Your mercies are new every morning. We know that our lives center around keeping you at the center. We know we struggle with that in this world way too often. But Father, I pray that you would use this message to redirect our hearts. Use Jacob to remind us that we don't have to grapple with you to get everything we think we deserve. We just have to trust you that your plan is working out and we're stewards of what you've given us to today. Help us to be the best stewards ever. Help our kids to see it, our relatives to see it, our relationship circles to see it, our workers, our our co-workers to see it. May this world recognize that we're different, not because we stick out as weird people, but because our value system is completely different. We value everything that you do. May that be evident in everything that we do. Thank you for the lesson we have learned already from Jacob. And as we go into the rest of these, Lord, I pray that you would redirect our hearts as they need to be redirected so that you go center stage. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We finish every every service with our communion. And the reason we do this is because uh, our goal is to um, share the gospel with you, make sure the gospel is clear uh, before we let you go. And so um, we want to uh, we want to make sure that you understand the only reason we're even here as Village Church East is because Jesus has given us um, an opportunity to do this in a very unique setting. We keep the doors open when we sing because we want to make sure that everybody out there hears us singing praises to God. We invite you to be with us because we want to invite you into um, an environment where you know Christ is the center. And we finish our service by drinking juice and eating bread because it's a reminder to us of what it took for us to have a relationship with the Father. Every one of us in here has one big thing in common. We love to sin. We fail on a regular basis. Our flesh drives us to do things that is not godly. Jesus has come because he knows who we are. He knows we're only flesh. 
And so Jesus came because we cannot earn the favor of God. Jesus has earned every ounce of God's favor. And so when Jesus went to the cross as the perfect son of God, he died on that cross as a perfect individual. He shed his blood, sinless blood, and he gave his body on the tree to be pierced and die so that we could have a relationship with the Father. We messed it up. He put it back together. So the message of the gospel is this. If you want to have a relationship with the Father, you must go through the Son, Jesus Christ. He is the doorway to the Father. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when you eat this bread and when you drink this juice, you proclaim Jesus as your Savior. And one day he'll come again. And and if we don't make it until that day when we see him face to face... If we don't make it because death overtakes us, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We can't lose. It's a great great side to be on, I want to tell you. So we celebrate. When we drink the juice, it's a symbol of the blood that was shed for us. When we eat the bread, it's a symbol of the body given for us. This is what it took for us to have a relationship with the Father. And if you're here this morning, you don't know Christ as your Savior, you've never yielded your future or your life to Him like we've been talking about this morning, this would be a great time to do it. We have a prayer section over here. We'll have uh, ladies and men over there. So if you'd like to come up and pray and just ask questions, we, we are here to answer any questions. We don't hide our agenda. We're here to answer any questions that you have. We would love to share with you knowledge so that you can know before you go to bed tonight where you stand in your relationship with the Father. If you're here this morning and you don't know, you're just like, I'm not sure where I stand in relationship to God. We'd encourage you to let the bread and the cup pass when it's passed around. We don't want to point you out. It's not for that at all. We just don't want to make you say something that's not true. And until you make sure that it is, um, we, we, don't want to, we don't give you an opportunity to, to declare something that's not actually true yet. But you can make that happen today. We want to give you an opportunity to do that. When the bread and the juice are passed out, take the juice, take the, take the bread, Stand. We're going to sing with the, the, the crew up here. And then I'm going to come up. I'll read a passage of Scripture. Hang on to it. Don't drink. Don't eat yet. Just hang on to it. And we'll eat and drink together. The reason we do that is because all of us get saved in the same way. All of us get redeemed in the same way. We all have to go to the cross. We all have to confess our sins. We all have to accept Christ as our Savior. And we all have to yield to Him. And uh, including me. So all of us eat and drink at the same time. Let's worship the Lord.